All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Welcome back to another episode of Loyalist Connections. So today we're going to discuss Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Yarmouth is located in southwestern Nova Scotia, roughly three and a half hours away from Halifax and close to eight hours from Sydney. It's one of the most southern points in Nova Scotia. Yarmouth in 1604, we had DeMont and Samuel du Champlain who discovered and named Cape Fortune, the Fort Cape, which is located in Yarmouth County. So Yarmouth has a French-Canadian connection. You know, it dates back to the mid-1600s. Also, if you don't know, 1755, we had the Great Upheaval, the expulsion of Acadians by the British from the Maritime Provinces. The Acadians were gone, leaving their cultivated lands. This paved the way for the New England planters. What's interesting is the New England planters, of course, brought slaves with them. And so the first documented African Nova Scotian in Yarmouth County was roughly around the 1750s. Those New England planters originally settled in Annapolis Valley region and then moved towards the Yarmouth area. There were slaves in Yarmouth? Yes. There was a number of slaves in Yarmouth. If you ever get a chance to look at the story of Jude and Diana, Uh and it's a very graphic depiction of what slavery was like in Yarmouth County. Wow. Also, we have black loyalists. Now, the black loyalists resettled in Yarmouth after the 1784 race riot in Shelburne. What did we learn about that race riot? We learned that it was a religious riot. In the first episode with Graham Nickerson, he explained the intermigration that would have happened throughout the province. And so you had New England planter slaves as well as black loyalists mm-hmm. that would have intermigrated to Yarmouth County. They would have also moved other parts of Nova Scotia as well too, I believe. We know that some went to to Port Mouton and yes. then Port Mouton burnt down. They moved to Upper Big Trackety. So a lot of intermigration that would have happened throughout Nova Scotia. I didn't even mention Central in that sense. Mm-hmm. Some of them probably would have went to Halifax region, the Preston area as well too. In roughly the 1920s and the 1930s, there were roughly 1,000 African Nova Scotians. This would have also included Greenville. As of 2016, roughly 300 African Nova Scotians are located in Yarmouth County. What is interesting is that you and I both have connections to this area. Yeah, we do. And when we start putting this in context, 1750. And I grew up in Yarmouth. Not until recently did I start thinking about slavery in that area, which I we know now was prominent back then. But to think that the first documented encounter of a black person there was in the 1750s, it's hard to believe. That is like over 250 years ago. That's right. I'm not going to do the math right now. But that's, that seems, that seems, as long as it's over 250, yeah, we're safe. We're safe, right? Yeah. I'm doing math here. Yeah, no, but yeah, you're right in that sense. And, you know, when you talk about the ties to the community, well, you know, if I look at myself as I thought it was just growing up, you're kind of naive in that sense. My father's there. I know my grandfather was there who passed away when I was around eight years old. Mm-hmm. But then I started really 
asking some questions recently, and I know that my great-grandfather was a minister in the African Methodist Church in Yarmouth. Wow. And then to take one step further, my great-great-grandfather was what they would have called a circuit minister that was originally from Lower Sackville, and then he ended up traveling to Yarmouth, and that's where he made his home. So my great-great-grandfather was a member of the Number 2 Construction Battalion. They migrated from Shelburne to Yarmouth. Right. So that is my tie. My great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother are both buried in the area now. So it's my draw to the community. And it's so deep-rooted, right? But we also see where the theme continues in Yarmouth of a Caribbean migration with islands like Jamaica. You got Barbados, you got Antigua, you know, and other Caribbean islands migrating to Nova Scotia, but people from those islands settling in Yarmouth. I think one of the things we remember is when Graham said to us, is like, there's plenty of connections there. Yes. And so, again, growing up in Yarmouth, I was a little naive to that fact, right? I think, again, this is part of us not talking about our history and understanding the connections, how wide and vast they are. Mm-hmm. Every step of this journey, I am surprised by what we're learning. Exactly. And that's why we're doing this. And that's why we're doing this. So one interesting thing about Yarmouth I've always thought about is the connection with shipbuilding and ports there. Shipbuilding and ports, but there's a huge fishing community, right? It's huge there. It's huge. Yeah. And another thing, too, that just popped into my mind, we've been talking about, especially when we spoke with Graham, how resourceful and how skillful these individuals were coming from the mariner sort of, you know, the marine lifestyle. That's right. But when you look at the the Caribbean islands, what are they surrounded by? Water. And so this is where (laughs) for years, like, and I can be honest with you. Yeah. I was like. Like my dad fishes, but yeah. like, I'm like, well, why do we, why, I, I don't really want to fish. But then now I'm starting to piece this all together, mm-hmm. right? And when you start looking at it, it's, it's like we're surrounded by the water. Our ancestors were surrounded by the water. So this makes sense in that sense. Another thing that we noticed was racism. It still existed in Yarmouth. Very prevalent from what I understand. I've heard stories mm-hmm. from numerous people. I know for myself growing up, some of the systemic racism that I've experienced yeah. in terms of policing, things uh-huh. of that nature uh-huh. as well, too. One other interesting thing is, and I've said this before, and I kind of, you know, I've, I'm getting on this kick of segregated schools. Well, I didn't know there was a segregated school in Greenville. Wow. Wow. Uh, and from my understanding, closed in 1954, 55-ish. So when you think about it in the context, like 1955, that wasn't, that's our parents' lifetime. That wasn't that long ago. That, that's our parents' lifetime. Right. And we talked about the draw to these areas, especially with the expulsion of the Acadians. There was land. That's right. But did the black loyalists get land or like did they own land or did they have to rent? It's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. These are the things that I've never really questioned <laughs> until we started along this journey in, in these communities. So I'm hoping that we can get some answers. Uh-huh. Now, the other interesting thing within all of these historical communities is the central gathering spot. So I'm assuming there's a close tie with religion and churches there as well, too. And I mentioned about my grandfather being an African Methodist minister there as well. So it will be interesting to see how many churches were in the area, whether those churches were just black churches solely. Well, and one thing I think should mention as well, too, is 
the connection between Yarmouth and Greenville. And now to introduce our special guest for this episode, Bruce Johnson. Bruce is originally from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. He grew up in the south end of Yarmouth during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Bruce graduated from the Nova Scotia College School of Pharmacy in 1974, making him the first African Nova Scotian to hold this distinction. An entrepreneur from a young age, Bruce has owned City Drug Pharmacy for the past 30 years. So I'm here today with Bruce Johnson. Bruce is a local Yarmouthian, as I would say. He's been pretty influential in the black community and community broadly here in Yarmouth County. Before we start, I just want to take the time to say thank you, Bruce, for doing this with me. I've known you pretty much since I was born, yeah, to be honest much. with you, right? Basketball is our... I think are common interests, but um, what I've always remember about you is going into the local pharmacy and seeing you, and it was great to see a familiar face, uh, another black face in the community that I, I knew that was a staple here. So thank you for being here today. You're and I guess when I reached out to you, I was thinking about the Yarmouth community. Okay. And one thing we were discussing was about the first settlers here, mm -hmm. essentially. And we know that some of the first settlers here were the New England planters from the 1760s. And we just had this conversation about, well, we know that black people probably were here at that they, time they as well, too. Here. Yeah. Yes. And we talked about they would have been here to provide assistance in terms of farming, uh, building the houses, things of that nature. But what is your connection to Yarmouth specifically? Well, specifically, well, of course, I was born in Yarmouth and raised in Yarmouth and went to school in Yarmouth, but I'm one of these people who actually came back to Yarmouth. A lot of people that grow up in Yarmouth leave and they never come back, only to visit. Right. But I found a niche in my career where I could actually come back and earn a living. So that brings me back to Yarmouth. You know, initially, growing up in Yarmouth was, I look at it as fun, you know, like the black population was mainly in town along Hassel Street and Pearl Street. That seems like we were hung out with my friends down right. that way. We played at the waterfront and played around the trains. And that's where I sort of got my experience from, right? Before <laughs> so, I switched over to sports, that's where we hung out at. Yeah. And that was in the south end of Yarmouth? No, it was in the south end of Yarmouth, yeah. And the majority of the blacks were located in the south end of Yarmouth? Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, as I can remember. Yeah, and so in terms of the original settlers, we talked about the New England planters, but can you give us a description of some of the families that would have been in the Yarmouth area at that time? As a kid, I know, like, looking down Haskell Street, I look at the Eskins, the Kellys, the Middletons were a huge crew. That's right, yes. There's a lot of Lawrences, Freenberry, Hilda Brown, which just happened to be a relative of Leonard Brown. He's another right. character in town. And, of course, the Fells and the Smiths. And uh, in their other part of my extended family, my dad's brothers and brother and sister right. lived in the area. Right. Do you know why they settled there specifically? Why would they gravitate to the south end of Yarmouth opposed to, let's say, 
the center of Yarmouth or further up into, I believe it's Milton area. Well, Yarmouth has been built on sailing ships. Right. And so all the work was centered around the waterfront. So this is where they tried to live close to where they had to go to work. Right. And my father always told me about different stories when he was a young man, how they would stand up in front of a cart and you have the boss man would stand on the cart and he was looking at who would want to work today? Who would like to work? You, 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 you. And he went through the line. Right. And he asked everybody if they wanted to come to work and off they would go. There's one funny story Dad would tell me about Mr. Kelly. They call him Deacon, right? Is that Seaver? That would be Seaver Se- Kelly. Yeah, okay. And he, and he asked, Deacon, do you want to work today? <laughs> it was just funny to me at that time. Right. Because Seaver's always pretty straight. He yeah. Didn't, didn't move around too much. And yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. Um, so the land that they owned in those specific areas, did they all own the land or was it government owned? Well... At that time, I think most of the land where they were living, they were renting. And most of the time, they rented from a lot of Jewish families because they owned most of the property and houses in that area. Oh, that's interesting. So they rented from them. Right. Whether it be $5 a week or what have you. Okay. Whatever they could afford. I've never thought about that aspect before in terms of the ownership, right? And not having that owning your own building in that own your own uh, it's rare to own your own property in the early stages right unless you had a really great job yeah you know i remember when my father first bought his first house after they got married he went to freddie eman and he borrowed a thousand dollars or fifteen hundred dollars right seemed insurmountable okay to buy his first home he never went to the bank he went to a prominent businessman in the community which had helped a number of people out on a regular basis. So I find that interesting. Why, and when you think about access to financial institutions and things of that nature, you know, instead of going to a bank, he goes to somebody that's a private business owner to get the the money that he needs. Were there barriers that he would have faced at that time? I am sure there were barriers. All the financial information that you would ask a person who basically worked from day to day Right. It's really had no future. Right. You know, so how would you be able to pay your rent and and food plus pay on your house? You know, it's pretty insurmountable. Yeah. We've heard similar stories as well, too. Right. In terms of that, those barriers, accessibility and things of that nature. So for you growing up in Yarmouth, what was that like? You spoke about your father a lot. I know about the... And so, obviously, the ties to the missionaries, the community, but what was it like for you growing up in Yarmouth at at that time? Well, it was, I felt it was normal because we were poor, but everybody was poor. Right. So, but you may do with whatever you made. Yeah. You know, Dad, when I was growing up, at that time, he had worked, started working at the YMCA. So, he had a full-time job. And I don't know what sort of benefits he had, but he probably would have some vacation. And my mother worked at different houses. She would pair meals or would serve guests at a party. And that's how she earned a little extra money for the family. Right. But I, me, my brothers and sister, we had a very, I thought, was a normal, happy life. Life, yeah. Well, you said, I mentioned about everybody being poor around you. Yeah. And... 
And that's the interesting thing is that that also built a sense of community as well, too. And, you know, you're able to go knock on the door. I think about where I grew up and I've referenced this before, but, you know, my grandmother was literally down the street. Right. And, you know, everybody in your community. So it makes it seem almost like it's normal to you. Right. And in your day to day life, because you have that community around you, it really is. You embrace that. And that's yeah. just how you continue on with your life. We did. Like if we needed, if we ran out of flour, we would go down to Aunt Jen and get a cup of flour. Or right. If we need a couple of eggs that we didn't have, we'd go pour a couple of eggs from your, yeah. our relatives down the street. Right. There was always accessibility in that always. sense as well, too. Right? And at the same time, those people always watched out for the children. So if we were doing something wrong, they would tell us, then tell our parents. We heard a similar story with with Dr. Barb Hamilton Hinch. She said that when somebody wasn't acting right, and it's literally like the whole community is responsible for that, right? Exactly. Yes. So your upbringing and experience in Yarmouth, and I always think that that experience is unique. Um, I can speak from personal experience because I know that it's geographically isolated at times here. But it's also sometimes a blessing in disguise because you're able to try different things. What we were wondering about was how did your experience growing up impact your educational pursuit? I think my parents sort of instilled in me that you should be earning a living. Not that I had to go work for a living. Right. But you should be able to earn your own money. We, Although my parents gave me allowance at the end of the week, but I wanted to earn my own money. Right. So I started off by selling fish that I got from the wharf. Right. From there, it worked into selling bottles that I went door to door to gather. From there, it moved into my own paper route. Right. You know, from there, I worked for Hermes Shapiro's, where I would clean up after work was closed. Very you know? entrepreneurial. Yeah, right? I just yeah. kept finding jobs where I could make money at. Right. Yeah. And how did that move into your pursuit of? I guess it's medicine, pharmacy in that sense? Yeah, as a, as a child, I remember getting a, a doctor's kit for Christmas, and that sort of intrigued me. So as I moved along through school, I always thought about being a doctor. Then as I got along towards grade 11 or 12, I went to work in the hospital pharmacy just for a summer okay. through my next-door neighbor, who was a pharmacist. They helped me get this job in for just a summer job in the hospital, and I, I was became very interested in the pharmacy, and I also looked at the doctors how hard they worked. Right. Their emergency department, they would come over to the pharmacy to have a smoke right back then, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yes, I love medicine, but they look like they work too hard. I want to be able to enjoy my life a little bit." Right. Because they were working like twenty four hours a day in those days. Right. Yeah. But that sort of drove me towards pharmacy, and I applied to pharmacy. So uh, you mentioned some, there was an opportunity there from a pharmacist. That was yeah. somebody that was from that was white from that was white from yeah. yeah. And they only lived just up the street from us. Right. They were called that was Bill and Oral Mooney. Okay. It's funny about oh, Mooney fam. Yeah. Okay. My street, they lived up the street, a little farther up with Dick Judge. Okay. Who owned the pharmacy? Then a little farther on that street. <laughs> Was the the father of Bill Mooney, who was Leo Mooney. Right. So we actually had three pharmacists living on the same street. It was like you were destined to pursue yeah, pharmacy, right? pharmacy. You, had, you yeah. didn't have a chance at that yeah. point, right? That's interesting, too, because I think that's one of the things that sometimes we forget is that having that surrounding around you, that's where you get that yeah. desire to pursue that additional education, right? Definitely. And, 
I wonder, like your daughter went on to pursue it. it. It just seems like once you get that initial exposure to that, it makes things a lot easier. I think it does. She sort of wasn't really decided on pharmacy initially because I always worked a lot of hours, right? right. So you work a lot of hours in pharmacy. So she said, oh, I'll get my science degree first and see if I want to go into medicine or, or not. Then, after she got her science degree, she said, yeah, I'm going to go into pharmacy. Right. right? Yeah. You know, the availability of jobs and opportunities were just starting to build in pharmacy, too, at that time. Big box stores came along. Yeah. Which is really interesting. The other thing, too, is I've read some articles about yourself, but how you are trying to improve the accessibility to the pharmacy at the grassroots level. And why is it important for you as somebody that's came from this community to go back and get back to the community and, and discuss how successful career you've had in terms of pharmacy? Well, I've often seen people or young students interested in pharmacy, but I want to see different faces involved in pharmacy. So I've been to school a number of times talking about the career, and I've always suggested that they come down to the store and have a look around. Right. And if the possibility of a summer job arose, come in and we'll see what we can do for you. And over the years, we've had, believe it or not, a number of black students come in. Come yeah. In and out. Yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. So when you were growing up, what was a central gathering point for the Yarmouth black community at that time? When I was younger, the biggest gathering point would have been the church, would be the role of Sharon Church over on East Street. Right. They would have Sunday school on Sundays and the regular church service and with in the summertime we always go on a, a big picnic. I remember the picnics out to John's Cove or Sand Beach or even someplace we went back in the country, but that was a huge gathering for the black community at that time. Right. Was it a black church per se? It, it was the black church. Yeah. Yeah. So and this is the next question. What we're finding is that the black church was central to a lot of these these historical communities across Nova Scotia. I also look into that from another lens as well, too, because there's an element of also being segregated from the regular yeah. population as well, yeah. too. Did you uh, ever have an opportunity to go to other churches, or was that just kind of the central point for you guys to go because you knew that was right in your community? No, my parents went there initially, but then they moved to another Baptist church, which would have been Temple Baptist Church. Right. So that's where they went to services there, and I, of course, went also. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of, and I'm back kind of to paint a picture of some of the segregation, things of that nature, I've heard stories from people in the community about segregation. It probably might not have affected you, but it could have affected your parents, per se. Yeah. Do you recount any stories, per se, about segregation in the Yarmouth community? Oh, Yeah. One of the stories I remember is, if you went to the show, people of color had to go upstairs in the balcony. I've heard that. Yeah, and that's that would last a very long time. Yeah, and that's sort of one of the biggest ones. And most of the times, out in public, well, most black people at that time they never really went uptown to eat in the restaurants or they did shopping. But you could tell if you're in the store walking around. There always seems to be like a set of eyes watching you. you yeah, know? right. It was it still very. I think that's the other thing too is that kind of the unwritten rules, yeah. right? As well too, right? Yeah. I can't remember when segregation was actually 
abolished in terms of legislation. But even though it was, let's say, mid 50s, 60s that it was, there was still that presence of segregation in the community. We've seen that. I was uh, reading Sharon Robart Johnson's book where I found a lot of information about you as well, right? Um, And the reference to not going past Forest Street at six o'clock. That's right. Now, So I've heard that from a number of individuals in the community. When I was growing up, I was that yeah. wasn't true. That wasn't. It wasn't true. No. But then I found out the, the word of mouth that that actually was fact. It, here, it was right? uh, unwritten law. Unwritten mm-hmm. law, right? Yeah. And so that those are the kind of things that we're trying to shed a light on in that sense as well, too. Yeah. So the Yarmouth community itself, how has it changed over the years? Oh, it's completely changed. Uh, our community has gotten, of course, smaller and smaller as the years go on. And so that seems to be about the biggest change. But uh, right now we have the uh, Greenville Community Center, right, which is used a lot by the community and for the rest of the overall community, right. too. So it's an area where it's still run by the Greenville community, and it's still known as a blacked community hall, yeah. you know, which is really the only community entertainment that we really have, yes. you know. Yeah. So can you speak about your ties to the Greenville as well? And, and when I say that, it's interesting because I know my father has recently became involved in the Greenville Community Center as well, too, right? We did at the same time, actually. Yeah. 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 So what's the close tie between Yarmouth and Greenville in that sense? Well, we looked at the, at the hall, and unfortunately, they weren't able to get along running the hall. So Sheridan went after people outside of the community to help get together and just to run the hall right. in the positive way without any backlash or <laughs> talking from anybody. So yeah, that's, that's right. What, that's what we did. You know, we wanted it to be a, a success, and it has been. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I think it was two years ago before COVID happened, I uh, participated in the Harvest Festival dinner there. Right. So I came in. I was able to, I didn't actually eat the food. I prepared the food, which was a really interesting experience. So you got that sense of community there as well, too. And one thing, when I think about yourself and giving back to the community, how is it important for you to give back to the community as a whole? You know, as you get later into your years in terms of your legacy, but also making sure that you've kind of laid the the groundwork for other uh, black youth in the area. That all started sort of for me when I came back to Yarmouth to work. I got a job with Fraser Mooney, and he said, you should start giving back to the community. Right. You know, you're here working with me. You should be doing something else outside the community. Right. Because looking at him, he always did something outside the community. So at that time, I became involved with the Boys and Girls Club. It sort of was a start and just sort of build from there. Yes. And it's always important for us as black individuals to give back to our communities as well, too, right? Because if you don't have anybody there to look up to or to see, you know, like... Yeah. And this has been, like I said, walking into your pharmacy, right? Seeing somebody like that, knowing that you can achieve these other things is very important and impactful in that sense. So one thing that consistent pattern we're noticing in these black communities is that there's a declining population in most of these communities. And we've kind of talked about that as well too. But what are your thoughts on the declining population in Yarmouth per se? I look at myself as an example. I I come back and forth. But what do you think the reasoning behind the declining population is? uh, I just think it's, it's more around job opportunities. 
if you went away and became a pharmacist, yeah, there's a possibility that you could come back if you weren't snapped up by one of the other bigger organizations who were looking for pharmacists right. and looking for pharmacists like in Halifax or looking for pharmacists in Sydney because right. they were all out there trying to get you to come work for them. Yes. And trying to sign you up with a bonus. Yeah. You know, but basically it's job opportunities, you know, and you, you come back to Yarmouth, you're, you're limited. Yes. It, unless you're working in the medical field, which is wide open. Or education. Or, or educational yeah. field. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's limited after that. Yeah. yeah. So the black communities now in Yarmouth, has it shifted? Are they same or, or are they still living, the majority of them, are they still living in the South End? No, it's shifted. They're living all over the area now. Yeah. Yeah. I find in, in, even though in Greenville, most of the families out there are basically the senior families. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> and once they disappear, you know, there there's going to be openings up there for younger people to move in if right. they would like to go to that road. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think that's the interesting thing is that, you know, you mentioned about the job opportunities. And I look at somebody like myself, it's like... I can't come back here no. because of the lack of employment opportunities for myself. Also, too, my wife would probably wouldn't be be too, yeah, be too thrilled coming back to Yarmouth, right? Yeah. But it's one of those things where, you know, um, we've seen this pattern where in a lot of these smaller communities, yeah. the accessibility, uh, not having access to these things as yeah. well, too, right? So right. it's... Um, Something that, you know, those parallels are drawn through a lot of these communities throughout the province. And I would say probably more broadly as well, too. So we're becoming mainly a, a senior town, basically. Yeah. You know, there's so many seniors out there looking for a doctor. They have greater health issues. Yeah. You know, they don't want to spend time in the emergency room. And I find a lot of people who were born here, they moved away. But 30, 40 years later, they're coming back to Yarmouth. They want to relax, take it easy. Yeah. Know some people in the area. Yeah. You know, they're coming back this way. So uh, we talked a little bit about your father. And now that I've got you here, I want to talk about the missionaries. As oh, well, I, too, I love the missionaries. Right? <laughs> and I still uh, think about hearing their record. Uh, my dad playing their vinyl record. Yeah. And what I didn't know is that my grandfather wasn't an original member. He came nope. in later, right? Right. Um, so who were the original members and what was that transition like in terms of getting those new members? And when did you, your father was an original member, original correct? Member, yeah. yeah. They, the missionaries basically started off not as the missionaries. Right. They were singing in the Rose of Sharon Church. It was my dad, Seber Kelly, and the two um, Francis brothers. Right. They came from Digby, but they lived in Yarmouth. Okay. Now, those were the original missionaries. Okay. Then they exchanged a couple of different people to try it out, but they didn't work out. Mr. Crawford was one. And they eventually, they found Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlie became like the third member. Then after Charlie, in, later on in the early 60s, they found Mr. Fells. Right. And they became the missionaries, but... Their name changed only when they moved and started singing out of the mission, the town mission. Uh, okay. and that's where the missionaries came along. Right. At that time. Yeah. And I always think about uh, their legacy and what they've left behind. But what does it mean to you to know that your father was part of that famous oh, group? Very proud indeed. Yeah. Proud of all the guys. And 
Every time I talk about some missionaries, I always talk about them going to Expo 67 right. and singing on the paddle wheel or going up and down the St. Lawrence River. That's sort of what they're... Big achievement, big opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. They were invited to go to Atlantic City after that and sing. Yeah. But of course, they were working. It was after the war. They, they had families. They couldn't go. Yeah. But they did appear on Don Messner's Jubilee, and and so, they had to sing a lot over in St. John and just with every church in Nova Scotia. Right. Yeah. It was a traveling group. And that's the other thing, too, is I think, like, the accessibility for them, right, to have an opportunity to go to Montreal. There was, at that time, there probably wouldn't have been a lot of groups no. that could say that as no. well, right? Not at all. And they were, I can't remember the Lifetime Achievement Award they received recently as well, too, from right? Edsma. Yeah, yes, from Edsma. Edsma. Yeah. Uh, so it's been, um, I, it's, it's funny how our families, that legacy lives on generation after generation. I drop it every now and then. And, <laughs> you know, my grandfather was, you know, he was in this group. People look at me like, what do you mean? And I'm like, yeah. no, he was part of this famous group right yeah, really. in the 1967 expo so yeah bruce thanks a lot hey bruce thank you for coming out sorry i couldn't be there with you and sean but we look forward to talking to you again in the future thanks for listening to the loyalist connections podcast this episode was produced by your host myself Luis gabriel downey and sean smith with support from podstarter also, we want to give a special shout out to Grace McNutt, who patiently endured our stressful antics and helped us find our voices through this journey. Special thanks for the support from Community Partners, the Black Cultural Center, and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society. Please visit these historical museums for more information on the community and so much more. We can't forget to thank our special guests, for their time and sharing their community connections and shedding light on this vital element of our history of the initial settlers. Your lived experiences and contributions on the history of Yarmouth is helping build a better picture of what life is like for our ancestors and fill gaps in our understanding of the lasting legacy of African Nova Scotians and more broadly, Canadian history. Bruce Johnson's contributions to our history will be forever documented for generations to come as we continue on our journey of building a digital heritage repository of our collective history. Until the next episode, listen, like, follow, and share Loyalist Connection Podcast on all your favorite platforms, and make sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connections Podcast. And for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, join the Loyalist Connections community on Patreon.com. Until the next episode, stay connected.